Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hello, this is Colin. Welcome back from your weekend. Welcome to our show. In the second half of the show, Adam Gopnik from The New Yorker and I will resume, I think, what is sort of one long-running conversation about something, which I realize isn't a particularly confidence-inspiring uh, forecast of what we're about to do. But it's sort of hard to explain what it is that Adam and I talk about. It's about the nature of liberal democracy, I guess. Uh, but before that, uh, another kind of tradition, uh, pretty much every Monday we do spend some time with the medical science, the epidemiology, the public health issues that surround the COVID-19 pandemic. Here to help us do that today is Tim Shacker, an infectious disease physician and vice dean for research at the University of Minnesota Medical School. So Tim Shacker, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So um, over the weekend, one of your colleagues, uh, Michael Osterholm, along with, and I think this is significant, the president of the Fed uh, in Minneapolis, uh, wrote a piece saying uh, very persuasively, arguing very persuasively, that if we don't do something more restrictive, if we don't do a shutdown significantly more comprehensive uh, and restrictive than what we've done so far, like a six-week shutdown, maybe a little bit closer to what was done in some European countries. We're going to be heading into the winter with these caseloads uh, rising faster and faster, which is what they seem to be doing right now. Maybe you could say a little bit more uh, about that. I assume you essentially concur with that argument. Generally, yeah. I mean, I think the the challenge here is that we have um, the number of cases around the country <clears throat> every day is just increasing in a very dramatic fashion. And um, there, you know, I agree with Mike that that it if if the idea is to get in front of this uh, and to um, stop the spread, then something dramatic has to be done. And in the absence of a vaccine, our tool chest is a little bit empty. I mean, it's not as it, it, we have limited tools. We have masks, we have social distancing, we have, um, you know, good hand hygiene and that sort of thing. But the most effective thing is probably to um, uh, keep people apart. It, it does seem that um, even in places, even in countries now where they did respond effectively, uh, where they had more stringent lockdowns, now that they are easing up, their caseloads are going up too. It's not as though they broke the back of the virus doing this. Uh, it, it's that they slowed it down. And obviously the size and rate of their increases are minuscule compared to ours. But it, it, it tends to make me think also that as others have said, the coronavirus or COVID-19 is going to be probably kind of background radiation in our lives for years to come. Even if we get a vaccine, there'll still probably be, you know, periodic COVID-19 outbreaks somewhere in the world. Well, I think that's a possibility. The um, As you were speaking, I was just thinking about, you know, the 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 thing that we have to remember um, is that we're really in a race here to get to a, an effective vaccine. So we, we can, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, 
there will probably be periodic outbreaks, um, and it is critical that we get as much of the population protected as possible. So, um, you know, when, when Mike was suggesting this, this temporary shutdown, I think, you know, really what we're trying to do is, is to get control of things in some way uh, so that when the vaccine is available, and we're all hoping that that's going to be relatively soon, um, you know, we'll, we'll have a much better chance of, of containing things. So let's talk a little bit about the vaccine. It seems as though, uh, at least my perception is, we've taken a problem that we had in this country, which was anti-scientific resistance to vaccines, so, so-called so anti-vaxxers. And if they represented, you know, maybe 20% of the population, people who were genuinely vaccine skeptical, thought their, the risks might outweigh the benefits, it seems like we've at minimum doubled that potentially by having something called Operation Warp Speed, by sending a message to the population uh, that uh, the urgency of the situation uh, requires the development of a vaccine way, way faster than any vaccine has ever been developed before. And I think we can all agree that that's desirable. But looking at even some of the public uh, opinion research, it's starting to seem as though we're scaring a whole new set of people. So is your point that uh, <clears throat> given the nature of the way that this has rolled out, that more people have become skeptical of vaccines? Yes. I mean, would you agree yeah. with that? Yeah. Do I agree with that? I, yeah. I think it's unfortunately probably true. I think... Um, um, you know, we, we are in an era where um, there's a lot of skepticism around um, science, and that's really, really unfortunate. Um, you know, I go back and point out that um, it has only been six months and a little bit, uh, you know, six, six months and a couple of weeks since this virus was, since the sequence to this virus was published. Um, and in that time, you know, we now have multiple, we've designed multiple vaccines. They're in clinical trials. The, um, the therapies for, for uh, SARS-CoV-2 related disease, COVID-19, the therapies are, are really uh, coming online now and we're able to um, really decrease mortality with this infection. So an enormous amount has happened in six months that uh, is gonna significantly shorten the time of this pandemic, the timeline of this pandemic. I get that there are people out there who are uh, skeptical of vaccines. I think that's unfortunate. Um, I've not seen any data anywhere that uh, substantiates the um, uh, the worries that the people who um, are, you know, the anti-vaxxers um, with the, the worries that they put forward. I've never seen any data to substantiate that. So I, I just I think that's an unfortunate uh uh, turn of events. Right. It's probably going to vary to a certain degree elsewhere in the world. China and Russia are moving uh, very, very fast right now. There might be some countries where without adequate regulatory review, people start getting vaccinated. It seems in this country that uh, the FDA is going to stick to uh, their standards for proof of efficacy. But what does what does that mean? And, and I think specifically my question is, how much time does the phase three study have to go on before we can have some confidence about side effects. In other words, some vaccines would have side effects that don't show up, you know, immediately after getting the vaccine or maybe even a month after getting the vaccine, right? You really want to look long term at your phase three group and see what this uh, what this is doing to them. So how much time is that before you could safely bring it out into the population? 
before you, oh, you mean how much time do you have to go with a phase three trial yep. before? Yeah. So um, phase three trials are efficacy trials. Does the product do what, um, you know, you, you've designed it to do, whether it's a drug or whether it's a vaccine? So in these trials, uh, what they're doing is they're assembling large cohorts of people who are at particular risk for COVID-19. Uh, they're getting vaccinated with the uh, product versus placebo. And then you measure the rate of infection in each of the two groups. And the, um, the, the, if it's successful, then the rate of infection will be significantly smaller in the group that got the vaccine, the, the, um, the active part of the, the study. Um, you know, if, if this were a drug that you were testing and people were taking it long term, then the um, uh, assessments would go on for a much longer period of time to look for adverse events, side effects, you know, things that you don't want to have happen. It's a, uh, it's a little trickier in a vaccine study in the era that we're in where we have a pandemic and we need to be moving as quickly but as safely as we can. So I'm, I'm not aware, I, I just haven't seen the study design for the major studies that are out mm -hmm. there for vaccines to see what sort of follow-up they're, um, they're anticipating. Um, my, my guess is that they will get to an efficacy endpoint. Uh, the FDA will review the safety data and the efficacy data um, and release the product at that time. And then the companies will be doing ongoing um, uh, analyses to look for adverse events um, uh, you know, as time goes on, but I'm, I'm going to, I believe that they're probably going to, um, look more for the efficacy endpoints. Right. Uh, yeah. The, but I think also for those of us who are out there in the general population, we're not scientists, somebody like me, um, you know, I try to keep up on things. I try to understand these things, but I'm not a scientist. And so I'm aware of the fact that there are kind of fairly new vaccine approaches that are part of the effort right now. So, you know, you have these RNA-based vaccines yeah. and, then, and then these vector-based vaccines in addition to the more convention more conventional attenuated viruses and stuff like that. And and for so for the average person, there's they hear, "Wow, so this is like a kind of vaccine that kind of really hasn't been tried very much, if at all, like a kind, a category of vaccine. And it seems to me that once again, to reassure the uh, the public that this isn't going to have some unanticipated consequences, there needs to be either some education or I, I, maybe you can say a little bit more about that. Um, how confident, why should the, con the public be confident after uh, a phase three trial uh, that they can now get the vaccine? The FDA is really careful in the construct of these studies. Um, you are absolutely right. Three of the products that are the leading contenders, right? Well, when I say leading contenders, three of the vaccines that are uh, in phase three clinical trials um, are using um, uh, new approaches to the design of the vaccine. So the, the NIH vaccine, for example, is, a, is an RNA vaccine. It, it takes a little piece of uh, the nucleic acid of the virus that codes for the, the part of the virus that we think is the most um, immunologic that your immune system is going to respond to the best. Uh, and we give that to you and your, your, your body cells may actually make that protein. So it's a new approach. But I have to really stress that the FDA um, has, has spent a lot of time looking at the safety data 
in animals, in uh, preclinical uh, uh, work, in all of the human work that's been done so far, not only with this, but other vaccines. Um, and uh, they'll be looking very carefully at the phase three vaccine data as well. So all of the, um, the you know, the FDA is, is uh, fairly conservative when it comes to safety. Um, and so I have a fair amount of confidence that they're looking very carefully at this. The other question I think that a lot of people have, and I think it's probably not fully answerable right now, is what sort of immunity would one get out of a vaccine? You know, is it going to be more like the flu, where every year, because of you know the waning of our immune response and perhaps also possibly changes in the in the coronavirus itself, we'll need another shot, uh, or is it more likely to be the kind of thing where we would get a long-term measles vaccine type immunity? I assume that's something that we don't know yet. Are there Basis, bases for reasonable surmises about that question? Well, so that's a good point. Um, the, the reason why we get an influenza vaccine, a new one every year, is just because of the, 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 that virus has a tendency to change quickly. So the, the, um, the, the virus can mutate and it, it can mutate to sort of get around your immune system. And so we have to uh, carefully monitor for emergence of the whatever's coming our way in terms of an influenza vaccine, make a new vaccine, and then uh, immunize everyone. So that's why we get a new vaccine every year. Coronavirus is different. It's, um, it's a virus that doesn't mutate as uh, much, especially in the parts of the virus where um, you expect the immune system to you know, make antibodies against. That's our... That's our um, uh, that you know, that's what we're um, working on. So it's it's likely that the immune that the effect of the vaccine will be much longer, and you won't have to get vaccinated with a new vaccine regularly. What is unknown is how many uh, injections or how many ex how many doses of the vaccine it's going to take to build up the type of immunity we need to protect ourselves from the vac from the virus. So that's still an open question. It's probably going to be more than one dose. Uh, but they're working that out. I mean, it's interesting, too, because the the way that we uh, that they tend to look at these things right now because of what's available, they look at people who have in a more natural or we could say organic way been infected by COVID-19, by the coronavirus, and they see how durable the immunity is just in people who have gotten sick. But that's a little bit all, all over the map. It doesn't seem to be, you know, the same from patient to patient. And and my guess is it doesn't map really perfectly onto the way people respond to vaccines. In other words, I might start to show a loss in the durability of my immunity from a normal, a normally acquired case of COVID-19 after six months. That doesn't necessarily mean from the way I understand it, but correct me if I'm wrong, that that would be the case with a vaccine. Well, so I think there's there's two points there, um, uh, both really good points. The It is true that um, uh, people respond differently to vaccines and that not everybody's immune response is the same. Um, and that's, you know, the reasons for that are, are really not clear at this point. Um, we know with some vaccines that it um, uh, works less well in older people and other vaccines, it works really well in older people. Um, you know, we know that some vaccines in the developing world don't work as well as they do in the developed world. So there is that, that heterogeneity in response that's really important uh, to study and to look at. 
Um, and so, um, yeah, we, you know, there's a lot to learn um, uh, with respect for how people are going to respond. I think the other point to make um, is that um, the durability of the response is something that we really do need to pay attention to. Um, uh, you know, will, will your uh, immune system uh, uh, be able to respond a year or two or three years from now um, from the, the initial vaccination if, if you're exposed to the virus? That's something that we're just, we're going to have to keep working through and keep paying attention to. Remember, it's really important to stress that, you know, all of this is happening in real time. Um, I, I liken it to, you know, in some ways we're building an airplane while we're flying mm -hmm. uh, because we're in the middle of a pandemic and we're trying to create a tool chest um, uh, to, to, you know, uh, prevent infection and to better treat infection. And so, um, you know, that that, that's, that's, a, that's a real complicating factor. The normal uh, uh, process for the development of a vaccine is a years-long process, not a months-long process. But you know, we're 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 working um, uh, as the pandemic unfolds. So you know, to that airplane metaphor. So obviously, the vaccine uh, might be a thing ultimately that would help us keep our airplane from crashing. But first, in the cockpit, there's a bunch of dials uh, on the dashboard, and those tell us how much trouble we're in. And I think if you had asked me, you know, in in late February, early March, if you had told me that you know by early August we wouldn't really have a comprehensive testing program where anybody could get tested at pretty much any time or a testing program where results often take more than 48 hours uh, to come back. Um, I would have said, oh, no, no, we'll, we'll be testing better than that by August. Um, are, are you surprised by that? Did you, or, or, or maybe the better question to ask is, what do you see as either the strengths or the deficiencies in the state of testing for COVID right now? So am I surprised? No. Um, the Early on, it was in January, uh, in Minnesota, at the University of Minnesota, we, we made the decision for every response that we're going to make to COVID, we're, we're going to assume that we're on our own. Mm -hmm. And so we made the decision early on to develop diagnostic assays that were independent of supply chain issues, because we thought that that was likely to happen. Just given the number of people that were getting infected all over the world, the limited supply chain, all of the problems that, that go along with that um, production. We designed our tests so that uh, we, we were, you know, they're, they're, um, they're not dependent on supply chain issues. So that's been, a, that's been a, a, a limiting factor in the ability to provide tests. Um, the, just the demand for the tests is, is part of the, the uh, increasing turnaround time. In our lab, we've we've kept it to 24 to 48 hours consistently throughout the um, the course of the pandemic thus far, and I think that's in part because we are not as dependent on the supply chain. So, um, am I surprised that we're in the situation we're in? Not really, given the the way that the the virus is just uh, the increasing transmission that, that has occurred across the country. You know, when you look at what happened in New York City, it's not a surprise that it is happening elsewhere in the country. I mean, it seems as though in between now and the acquisition of a vaccine that can uh, can really be uh, spread across the population, 
it, it seems as though we probably need better tests or different kinds of tests. Michael Mina, who's been on this show, has uh, written and talked a lot lately about the idea that really there ought to be home tests, maybe saliva-based tests, so that yeah. you you could sort of catch yourself. You know, you, you could you could realize that you're an asymptomatic carrier without having to you know make an appointment or convince somebody that you need a test, which is often very hard to do if you're asymptomatic. Yeah, no, these are really, really good conversations to have because, um, like I said before, our tool chest is is limited. Um, the, the, the standard test that we use is the PCR test from a nasal pharyngeal swab. And a lot of people, and that's complicated, it's uncomfortable. Um, it's a molecular test and, um, you know, there are these supply chain issues. And there's been a lot of effort put into, can we test other things like saliva or can we just do a throat swab? Um, the challenge so far for most of these tests is that the sensitivity, their ability to detect the virus is less than the ability of the PCR to test on an NP swab. And so, you know, when, when you're thinking about testing asymptomatic people and a large population of people, that, that decrease in sensitivity gets amplified to the point of where, um, you know, it, the, the, you just don't it's hard to predict what the negative result, what a negative result really means. And, um, and that's where the conversation is right now. So I've heard the argument, you know, we, we should take these less sensitive tests, put them out there, and we're going to find more people. Um, and that may be true uh, and probably is true, but we're going to miss a lot. And so we're going to get this sense of confidence that, that may not be warranted. And so, you know, I think a lot of places, including ours, are working hard to improve the sensitivity of these easier tests. And I think that's what you're going to see is the next generation of these tests will be much more sensitive and uh, much more widely available. But it's, it's, it's the conversation that we're having in the testing world. Um, Tim Shocker, last question, uh, or, or sort of maybe a last umbrella of questions. Uh, we are all bracing for return to schools. Um, this is apparently going to be kind of a patchwork response, like everything else in this pandemic. Yeah. It's going to be patchwork, state by state, uh, decided somewhat on the idiosyncrasies of the state government and leadership and also conditions on the ground, which differ widely from state to state. I don't know, what's what are your general concerns about this right now? I mean, how, how confident are you that schools can reopen safely? Um, I would respond um, and step by stepping back and saying, you know, um, we are in the middle of a, of a pandemic where we are discovering um, new things about this virus almost every day. And so I remember back in, in May, uh, or April, we were having the conversation about can we safely open camps uh, so that kids, at least you know, in, in our part of the country, you know, kids could have some sort of summer and send them to the Y camp and that sort of thing. And there was a vigorous debate about that. And, and it was assumed at the time, because of the data that we had, that kids were less likely to get infected and would have, if they did get infected, they'd have a much uh, more uh, attenuated course. But of course, now we know that's not true. Um, just look at the Y camp, I think it was in Florida. And so our knowledge base is growing every day. And you asked me, is it safe to send kids back to school? I would caution that, you know, we now know that kids do get sick and they get sick with some pretty unusual things. Um, and also they come home to mom and dad and grandpa and grandma who are at greater risk for 
for dying from this. So I would just go back to what Mike Osterholm said, you know, if um, uh, we've got to get ourselves to the point of where we can get to the vaccine. Um, and, you know, uh, the other thing I would say, I'm not answering directly your question about schools, but I'm indirectly answering it, I think. Um, if people are really interested, they should go back and read what people went through in 1918 with the influenza pandemic and the sacrifices that were made there, not for six months, not for 12 months, but for two to three years, two years anyway, um, and how that changed life going forward from there. And I think, you know, these are the sacrifices, these are the challenges that we have to confront. Uh, and schools are a big part of it. I get it. But um, we're, we're, we've, we've got to make some tough choices. All right. Uh, that's uh, as good a place to end uh, probably as any, if not a necessarily uplifting uh, place to end. Tim Shocker is an infectious disease physician, vice dean for research at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Thanks for your time, sir. Thanks for having me. All right. When we come back, Adam Gopnik and I will talk about whatever it is that Adam Gopnik and I talk about every time we talk. So there. All right, so welcome back. Uh, we're now going to have another conversation, or maybe continue the ongoing conversation with Adam Gopnik, uh, author, staff writer for The New Yorker, the paperback edition of his most recent book, A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventures of Liberalism, was published uh, in July uh, with, a, with a new afterword. So you, even if you have the hard copy, you might not just throw it out and buy, the, buy it to get the, the new afterword. You know, it's like a sort of one of those albums that comes on with extra cuts, you know, whatever. Uh, and uh, we should also mention that uh, with composer David Shire. He wrote the book and lyrics for the musical comedy Table, produced in 2016 at Long Wharf Theater, uh, and has done many other things as well. Adam, welcome back. It's wonderful to be back with you, Colin, to talk about whatever it is we talk about. Right. So apropos of that, um, I was, I'm about to prove that I really have no life. I was watching um, over the weekend um, a conversation, I think it was an Aspen Institute conversation with the political philosopher Michael J. Sandel, who has a book coming out, I think in the fall, that will probably be one of those, you know, Amazon customers who bought your item also frequently oh, bought, bought, this, it, yes. bought this item. Uh, so a, a thousand small sanities will be pictured next to his book. Uh, but he was, he, he started out in an interesting place. Um, he was asked by the moderator something about the current pandemic. And he said, I think we were morally unprepared for this pandemic. And that had a Gopnikian ring to it. Um, and, you know, it is a point that you make in the book that, you know, for example, Adam Smith wrote two important books. He's known for one important book. The other book was about moral philosophy. There's a way in which when we confront anything, we talk about the money, we talk about the physical realities, we might talk about the politics. We, it takes us a long time to get to that M word, to, to morality. Uh, and, and I'm wondering what you see as you look at the current place we're in, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic, whether, in fact, you think we were morally unprepared, and if so, why? Great question. I'd be delighted if Michael Sandel's book is my Amazon crossover. It's usually, you know, my eight months in Paris right, with my kid <laughs> is the one. If you liked Adam Gottman's work, you should buy this one, too. Um, you know, it exactly speaks to, and I was listening to your previous conversation, and it exactly speaks this question about the moral foundation or basis of liberal democracy to what you were talking about there. Medicine itself um, 
takes place in a moral, in a social context. I just did a piece for The New Yorker yesterday about the um, relationship between the pandemic and social capital, civic trust. You know, and the question is, is do societies or even just cities, regions that have high levels of civic trust do better in the pandemic than have done better in the pandemic than others? And, you know, it's fascinating. Obviously, everything we know about the pandemic, we won't know five years from now. It'll all turn around. But for the moment, what the science, the social science seems to suggest is that places with very high levels of civic capital, social trust, networks of interlinked individuals um, suffered first worst from the pandemic and then recovered faster than um, cities and regions with low uh, civic trust. So if you think about it, it fits like a, you know, like a hand on a glove to our common sense experience here in New York City. And I have been sitting here in New York City, scarcely moving um, outside the apartment since uh, March. Uh, we had this horrific uh, peak and spike of the pandemic. And then we had the sense to start wearing masks. And I've been doing a, you know, close scientific study of mask wearing on the, uh, on the reservoir in Central Park where the runners run. And we masked up, the whole city masked up, the whole city began to practice social distance. And we've seen this extraordinary decline, really un unprecedented decline. So places with very high degrees of social capital, of um, moral sentiments that uh, have that spark of social sympathy that Adam Smith was talking about exactly, are hugely vulnerable. They're vulnerable because we're dense, we're packed together, we go places, we see a lot of people. But if expertise and experts tell us you're crazy locked down in your apartment and put on your mask we have enough confidence in the diffusion of expertise through those intellectual networks to listen to listen and within reason to obey and i think that that's exactly the sense in which there is a kind of moral foundation to how we operate within the pandemic look it's no accident that societies with very high civic morale have done better in this horrible pandemic than societies that, that don't have it. They've recovered faster, rebounded quicker. It doesn't mean they haven't suffered from them. We're all totally vulnerable to the virus. But if we do have a society with a strong spark of social sympathy, we seem to do better in the long run. Oh, right. Although then if we were to look instead of at New York City at the United States as a whole. Well, exactly. Because, <laughs> and, and exactly the issue is that we have been living, and now I will make my political sermon, through the past four years, and we could extend it back further, but certainly the past four years, in a kind of experiment in what happens when you actively try to corrode social sympathy, when you actively try to divide one part of a country from another, region against region, create enormous suspicion about cities, when you teach people day after day to mistrust expertise, that the experts don't know anything, they're just empty elitists, who pretend to know things that they don't actually know. So you don't have to put on a mask because putting on a mask is wearing panties on your face. It's feminizing, it, it, it's degrading to do it. If you participate in that kind of experiment in corroding social trust, you will have a pandemic like the pandemic America is experiencing right now. Right. Although I would say also there's two kinds of elitism or two kinds of uh, groups that we could call uh, elites. And so you're talking right now about a group of people who, from some kind of quasi populist stance, distrust elites, meaning people who are, uh, you know, 
technocratic uh, leaders, uh, people who have high levels of expertise. Um, but there's also the elites that haven't led the country very well for longer than just the past 3.6 years. You know, that, that we've been through uh, a financial crisis that didn't have to happen and then a remedy to the financial crisis uh, that didn't really address the needs of average people very well. We've been through a 17-year war in Afghanistan to God knows what end, uh, plus a war in Iraq. I could keep going. Um, yeah. and, and, and that there is, I'll, I'll just, because you'll just because you'll enjoy this. I was rewatching this movie. I hadn't watched it in a long time. It's called Margin Call. It's directed by J.C. Chandor. Uh, it's it's set in 2008. It's clearly about Goldman Sachs. And so there's a scene near the end where Kevin Spacey, who's maybe one of the more morally conflicted, slightly more morally conflicted members of this investment banking firm, in, encounters its big leader, played by Jeremy Irons, in the company's private dining room overlooking the New York uh, sky. Uh, skyline and they have a conversation and Spacey voices some of his concerns about the fact that what they're about to do, which is offload all of these credit default swaps, all these all this collateralized worthless debt packaged up as fake investments is going to really ruin some people's lives. Uh, and so here's how the rest of the conversation unfolds. It's just money. It's made up. Pieces of paper with pictures on it so we don't have to kill each other just to get something to eat. It's not wrong, and it's certainly no different today than it's ever been. 1637, 1797, 2000 and whatever we want to call this it's all just the same thing over and over we can't help ourselves and you and I can't control it or stop it or even slow it we even ever so slightly alter it we just react we make a lot of money if we get it right and we get left by the side of the road if we get it wrong and there have always been and there always will be the same percentage of winners and losers some sad sacks, fat cats and starving dogs in this world. There may be more of us today than there's ever been, but the percentages, they stay exactly the same. So that's like the ultimate anti-Gopnikian point of view, right? That that just baked into reality are these inequalities that can't be remedied and shouldn't be remedied. And and I think it is fair to say a certain percent of the, quote, elite leadership of this country has operated under those principles. But sure, please, I, please respond. But, right. A couple of things. First is is one of the tragedies of the United States, and it's one that's thematic in my book, is the severing of the economic elite from more broadly educated elite. One of a piece of evidence for it, which I started writing about in the very first long piece I did about the pandemic in New York for The New Yorker, was the flight of the wealthy from New York, Governor Cuomo's been talking about it, out to, dare I say, to Connecticut, <laughs> not really Connecticut, to the Hamptons and other places. But the sense in which people who have made their fortunes by taking advantage of the things that New York City offers, abandoning New York and not, and I was utterly shocked by it, not even having the decency to form a committee in New York, we got your back, put, everybody's going to put $100 million, these people have made billions of dollars, 
into supporting New York essential services and so on. Didn't do it at all. It's a real um, moral catastrophe. And it is about the severing of economic elite from a more broadly educated elite. Won't argue with that at all. On the other hand, when we listen to Jeremy Irons' memorable speech there, it's very good drama, but it's very bad economic history. Because the truth is, is that at each moment in the past when those things have happened, we have tried to and largely succeeded in reforming uh, what was wrong about it. You know, our suffering now, at least in the, uh, certainly in my native country of Canada and social democracies, Europe, and in the past, at least in the United States as well, um, we have um, a network of social protection. We try to have um, safety nets. We try to protect people as best we can from the vagaries and inequities of a market economy. That's why we revere John Maynard Keynes and so on. We have responded and we have reformed. Liberalism and liberal democracy doesn't claim for a moment to have a monopoly on virtue. What it claims to have is access to the means of reform. So when we're confronted with those kinds of um, injustices, when we're confronted with that kind of economic catastrophe, we are not simply going to be rolled over and left to starve in the gutter. Now, we have not protected those protections adequately. And part of the, the political polemic at the end of my book is about our responsibility to rebuild that side of uh, social democracy, as we call it. But the idea that we are simply vulnerable, that we'll get run over by the same steamroller again and again and again, isn't really, uh, I think, an accurate picture of the, uh, the history of the past hundred years. Although I will say this, Betsy Kaplan's on me to go to a break, but I wanted to stay with us for one second here. Um, you know, uh, you, you certainly read your colleague uh, Evan Osnos's piece about how Greenwich Republicans made their peace with the Trump revolution. And there, there is in that story you know, a kind of emptying out of the old poppy Bush notion uh, of noblesse oblige, of some kind of, you know, yes, some kind of social responsibility, civic responsibility to civic respond, response, yeah. you know, and, and, and there, there is kind of that, that sense there that not only is there no, no more noblesse oblige, there isn't even, I don't know, meilleur oblige, the people right. who are doing done a little bit better, a lot better than other people, owe something to, to the civic whole. And, and I do think that might be a difference now uh, uh, from the kinds of responses you've talked about from the past. Well, that's exactly what I meant when I said that the economic elite was getting severed from the, from the broader educated elite. And it's exactly what I mean when I when I denounce um, the people who fled New York and had no sense of responsibility for the place where they had made their money, exploited it, and then abandoned it. Um, but I would say that for all of those, for those Greenwich Republicans who have made their peace with Trump, there is a significant core of former conservatives, former Republicans, and we can list their names up to and including Irving Kristol and David Frum and so on, who have had the moral clarity to say, this is not tolerable, even if ideologically or even economically, it's in my interest to support it. It is not morally tolerable, tolerable for me to be in bed with a, a right-wing anti-democratic authoritarian. So uh, no one has a monopoly on virtue, but there is no, you know, nothing is a monolith either. And I think it's a mistake to think of these things as monolithic reactions. What we have to do in the whole essence of liberalism is forming broad pluralist coalitions of people who are not like-minded about everything, but are like-minded about the essential things. 
All right. We're talking uh, to Adam Gopnik. Uh, his book, A Thousand Small Sanities, is now out in paperback. Oh, subtitled The Moral Adventure of Liberalism, out in paperback now with a new afterword to reflect the exigencies of the present moment. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. Let me just say that when we come back, we are going to um, open with a clip. Actually, you know what? I'm going to set up the clip. Uh, we're not going to go- come into it because I want uh, to set up uh, Adam for a response. Anyway, we'll just take a break. We'll come back. Forget I said anything. To America first The cradle of the best of the worst It's here they got the range And the machinery for change And it's here they got the spiritual thirst All right. And many thanks to Cat Pastor, who's there in the studio, making it possible for the rest of us to work remotely. And by the rest of us, I mainly mean senior producer Betsy Kaplan, who is the producer of this episode. Tomorrow, we are going to revisit a show we did. Somebody once said that the whole point of the movie Ishtar is that the struggle of the bad artist is as um, epic as the struggle of the good artist. Uh, and w- with that in mind, you'll perhaps enjoy our show on the painters Bob Ross and Thomas Kincaid. <laughs> it's actually one of our favorite shows we've done in a long time. So anyway, that's what's coming up tomorrow. So we're back with Adam Gopnik. Uh, his book, A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism, is out in paperback. So um, in 2012, Barack Obama made what seemed like, in the way that it was spun by the Romney campaign, a huge political gaffe, because supposedly he had said something like, if you have a business, you didn't build that, which was seen, which was spun as this rebuke of American individualism and individual effort. Here's actually what Obama was saying. If you were successful, somebody along the line gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we had that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you got a business, that you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. The internet didn't get invented on its own. Government research created the internet so then all the companies could make money off the internet. The point is, is that when we succeed, we succeed because of our individual initiative, but also because we do things together. There's some things just like fighting fires we don't do on our own. I mean, imagine if everybody had their own fire service. That'd be a hard way to organize fighting fires. So we say to ourselves, ever since the founding of this country, you know what, there's some things we do better together. That's how we funded the GI Bill. That's how we created the middle class. That's how we built the Golden Gate Bridge or the Hoover Dam. That's how we invented the internet. That's how we sent a man to the moon. We rise or fall together as one nation and as one people. And that's the reason I'm running for president because I still believe in that idea. You're not on your own. We're in this together. So, Adam, the good news is he did win the election. And there might have been a couple of sentences in there that could have been worded better. Uh, But in fact, he's articulating, I think, you know, a sentiment that runs very strongly through your book. Absolutely. And Obama, I say without apology, uh, remains, is and remains a hero of mine. I think he's one of the uh, embodiments of liberal values that we've been lucky enough to have. And it's some sign, presumably, I suppose, of the still radical nature of liberal values that he provoked such a shocking reaction uh, 
among many that um, ideas that would seem to me to be foundational seem to so many people uh, disruptive to be uh, uh, dynamite. But yes, that's exactly the point. We live, but, and the, the point to, I, to add to that point, Colin, is that that is the, the beginning, that's the first premise of liberalism as, as I describe it and as I think it should be understood, is that we live within communities. We live within uh, shared civic uh, places. Um, we live with commonplace civilization, as Frederick Law Olmsted called it. And it's only when that's strong, when our educational system is strong, when our intimate links are strong, when we um, are able to communicate and share social uh, places with people who are not of our clan or our kind, only then can we have economic growth. Only then can we have meaningful individual liberty. So the connection between um, community and liberty, far from being a paradoxical or difficult one, that, that's foundational, that's fundamental to everything that a liberal democracy ought to be. Right. So, uh, Frederick Law Olmsted from Hartford. I, I'm, I have to say that yes, just the yes. way, you know, Canadians have to say that Bachman hey, yes, Turner over right, drivers, exactly. from, you know, that same kind of thing. So, um, uh, well, we're running out of time here, but so there's a, a little kind of equation that's uh, there in the afterward. I think it's, let me see if I've got it right. Australian gun laws, Canadian health care, and French public support for the arts. Well, as far as I'm concerned, Adam, done deal. I'd settle for that uh, in the first term of the Biden presidency, uh, but I don't think I'm going to get it. <laughs> but maybe you can talk about that. Yeah. You're not going to get it. And the point I'm trying to make throughout this book is that the fact that you're not going to get it doesn't mean you shouldn't continue to reach for it. Um, exactly the reason, you know, liberals of my kind are often condemned as centrists or incrementalists. And the point I make in the book is that we are not incrementalists in the sense that we wouldn't want uh, Australian gun laws tomorrow morning. I would do everything to have it. I can't get it because I have to persuade a plurality of my fellow citizens to want it along with me. The basic d difference between uh, liberal Democrats and uh, ideological fanatics of all kind is that we believe in pluralism and they believe in purism. And in, we're going to have to go about the business of persuasion, connection, uh, uh, election, uh, pulling together majorities. That's the only way that that kind of thing can be done. We are incrementalists because we recognize that Plural, that pluralism is essential, not because we don't want it to happen sooner, as soon as we possibly can. And we're centrist because not because we think the center is a better place than other places, but because we recognize that the world is constructed a little bit like an Italian village. Everything flows into the piazza in the center because that's where the people are. And those are the premises of liberalism as I, as I try to make a, a case for it in this book. I, I wonder if, you know, going forward in that incremental way, we have to kind of reevaluate our place in the world. Uh, the Canadian anthropologist uh, Wade Davis has a piece on Rolling Stone this week where he's, he basically argues that America's claim to supremacy in the world is over, that, that the pandemic in particular revealed that for the first time, the United States, which has been regarded in lots of different ways, was starting to be regarded with pity uh, because yeah. we're such a failed state. And so in terms of like how we think about our future, you know, make America great was basically an argument for the restoration of empire, I wonder what the what's the next way of the next iterative way of thinking about America? Is it uh, about a state that has really fallen onto hard times and, and needs not to restore its empire but its function? You know, I've never had a hard time as someone who grew up in Canada, lived for many years in France, 
um, loves being in London. The idea that Britain is uh, fallen because it no longer has an empire, the idea that France has fallen because it's no longer a grand military power, the idea that Canada is a lesser nation because it's not a bigger nation. I've never been able to make sense of that. What matters is being a good nation. What matters is being a benevolent nation. What matters is being a peaceful and prosperous and plural nation. I see America's greatness never was attached to its ability to project military power. America was great because we had the right values and also had such a rich popular culture that it seduced the world. We didn't win the Cold War with tanks. We won the Cold War with Frank Zappa and, and basketball. Those were the things that, that the world admired about us, the embrace and the inclusiveness of our popular culture. They admired the openness to immigration that enabled people that they knew to have come here and made decent lives. There's no connection between strength in the Trumpian sense and decency and success in a genuine human sense. All right. You have a nice uh, way of wrapping things up and also landing the plane right at the right time. Uh, so I would simply encourage people to seek out, if you haven't already, Adam Gopnik's book now out in paperback, A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. Adam, it has been fun once again to talk about whatever it is that you and I talk about. It always is fun to talk about whatever this is. All right. Go have a cup of coffee. I'll have one, too. Uh, the rest of you get ready for the show about Bob Ross and Thomas Kincaid. I don't know how that fits into the conversation, we, the cultural component of uh, the Gopnik conversation. But uh, it's what we got for you anyway. Look, our country's a disaster in so many ways.